Begin in Numbers 21. Numbers 21. Um, and you have kind of a outline of Numbers 21 on the board behind me. But in verses 1 through 3, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, was in the Negev, who lived in the Negev, heard Israel was coming by way of Atharim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And the name of the place was Hormah. So, uh, Israel attacked the Canaanite king of Now, it is true with a lot of these places, we're not exactly sure where each of these cities was. But uh, we're going to hopefully have some kind of, is it going to be later? Hopefully going to be up later and we'll talk more about that. But we don't know exactly where all they are. And it says, we heard Israel was coming and he fought Israel took some captive. But Israel makes a vow. Israel makes a vow. If you give them to me, then I will indeed utterly destroy them. Now we might listen to that and that may not sound like a good thing to us. I'll utterly destroy them if you give me victory over them. But this is a word that God will use the word here for utterly destroy. It's a word that He will use to talk about these particular nations. Now, uh, that word is going to be used here both in verse 2 and in verse 3. This word will also be used... I believe it is about 14 times in the book of Joshua. 14 times in the book of Joshua and 7 times in 1 Samuel chapter 15. What's going on in 1 Samuel chapter 15? God tells Saul to go and utterly destroy whom? The Amalekites or Amalekites. Go and utterly destroy them. So, it's a word that's used of Jericho, for example, in in Joshua 6. It's a word used in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So, this is a word that was used for uh, His judgment upon these nations. And they promise, if you give them into our hand, we will do this. They are acknowledging at least this. When they said, if you will give them into our hands. They're acknowledging that military victory comes from God. I don't know if they understood that properly in chapter 14. When they go up to fight without the ark, without Moses, and without the Lord. But here in this case, they are acknowledging that the Lord does this. And they call the place, in verse 3, they call the place... Now, does that name mean anything to you? 
What's it mean? Destruction. It was what? Destruction. Okay, the name means destruction. Matter of fact, the name is a play on this particular Hebrew word. It means to utterly destroy. It is also a name that was used back in 14 verse 45. In 14 verse 45, the text had talked about Israel's defeat. This is when they went to battle without the Lord. It says the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. This is a place of defeat. God is changing it into a place of victory. This is a place where Israel was destroyed. This is a place now where their enemy is destroyed. So God is giving this new generation a victory. And this will be a turning point in Israel's military fortunes. From this point on to the end of the book of Joshua... They will only lose one battle. Do you remember what battle that is? I, yeah. Where they, AI or I, when they are defeated in Joshua 7 and they go up without consulting the Lord. But it's a, this is a changing point. They're going to win three victories just in this chapter. Okay? Now, verses 4 through 9. They set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, so they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, because we have spoken against the Lord, and you interc- spoken against the Lord, and you intercede with the Lord, that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it will come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard, and it came about that if the serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Right after this military victory, The people said, if you'll give them into our hand, God gave the enemy into their hand. God kept His part of the bargain. Israel, in that case, does what they promised. But right after that, they complain. If Israel doesn't complain in the midst of the same story where God blessed them, they're going to complain in the next story often. They're complaining against God and against Moses. Now, most of the time, it is worded that they complained against Moses. Or they complained against Moses and Aaron. And their complaints were ultimately against the Lord, as Moses has pointed out on several occasions. 
But here it is worded a little differently. They spoke against God. It's stated from the beginning. They spoke against God and against Moses. Now again, they blame God and they blame Moses for bringing them out of Egypt. Why have you brought me? Why have you brought us out of the land of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no food, there is no water, and we loathe this miserable food. This is going to be the last section where we're going to see the people complaining in numbers. I'm not saying it was the last time it ever happened, but it's the last time it is recorded that it happened. Uh, And um, they say there is no food, there is no water. We have seen them complain about food and water particularly. Um, Remember in Numbers 11, they complain particularly about the manna. And the Bible described the manna. It describes the manna in order to say uh, that their complaints were unfounded. I want us to find a couple of statements that are made about that manna in the Old Testament. In Psalm 105, verse 40. Psalm 105, verse 40. This is a historical psalm. It is reviewing what God has done for the people. And it says, They asked, and He brought well, and satisfied them. He satisfied them with the bread... Of heaven. Psalm 105 and verse 40. He satisfied them with the bread of heaven. But, but let's listen to Psalm 78. Again, a historical psalm. Psalm 78, verses 24 and 25. The Bible says, He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. He did eat the bread of angels and sent them food in abundance. They say, we don't have any food. God gave them food in abundance. Psalm 78 Verse 25 says, Psalm 78, 25 says that men were eating the bread of angels. What do angels eat? I don't know really, or if they even need to, but I think that description is just to show us how unfounded, how unfounded their criticism is. There is no food, there is no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Now, we're tempted to say that. What were the options in the wilderness? Manna or starvation? Manna tastes pretty good in comparison. Sometimes, again, the taproot of a lot of our ingratitude is we feel we're owed. And I'll tell you frankly, and I I say this in audiences of younger people a lot, too. What I worry most about younger people in our country is just that attitude. 
that attitude that I'm owed everything. But I'm not saying that we don't share some of that attitude. Where have they learned a lot of it from? It's from us. I think they take it to an even higher extreme. But they've learned it from us. If we expect nothing and realize we're owed nothing, we are thankful for everything. And may God help us to be like that. That we're thankful for everything. And I think that these descriptions of manna show us just how unfounded these complaints are. But I don't know if you feel the same way that I do about snakes. But maybe that was the last reason they were complaining. The, last, the reason this is their last statement of complaining is because when they complained this time, the Lord sent fiery serpents among them. The Lord sends serpents among them. They bite the people and some of the people of Israel die. And the Bible says that brings the people to their senses. I want to tell you, a poisonous snake can bring you to your senses. And all of a sudden you appreciate the status quo the way it was before. And they said, we've sinned. We have sinned. And Moses intercede for us to remove the serpents from us. Now one of my footnotes was to Exodus 8 verse 8. And I was thinking about the comparison. The comparison is Pharaoh calls Moses in and says, Moses, and I don't remember if at that point he says, uh, we have sinned. I know he does say that on several occasions. But he says that he's done wrong. Please remove the frogs from us. He just says, entreat the Lord that he may remove the frogs from us. Pharaoh wanted the frogs gone. Now Israel wants uh, the serpents gone. Um, Christy made the point in talking about this text, talking to me about the text. She stated that uh, they have wanted to go back to Egypt so many times. Well, they're kind of like Egypt now. They're kind of like Pharaoh. They, 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 they might want to get rid of the punishment of sin, the consequences of sin, worse than they want to get rid of the sin itself. And, and we've sinned, we've spoken against the Lord, intercede for us that He may remove, um, He may remove the serpents from us. God gives Moses instruction in verse 8. In verse 8, he gives him the instruction, Make a fiery serpent for us, a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. Notice how closely, in verse 9, Moses' action follows what God stated in verse 8. In verse 9, Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard. That's exactly what God said in verse 8. And he does this in verse 9. It came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. 
And so the text reveals to us that as the people complain, God said snakes among them, they recognize their sin, they ask Moses to pray, God shows mercy to them in setting up this bronze serpent. That if anyone sees this serpent, they will live. Now, first I'm limiting myself here to the Old Testament. Where does this bronze serpent make an appearance? Where else in the Old Testament does this bronze serpent make an appearance? What was that? Yeah, they worship it. You remember the king who destroyed it? Hezekiah. It's in 2 Kings 18, verses 3 through 5. And the Bible is talking about how Hezekiah followed the Lord and he eliminated the idols from the land. And it mentions that he destroyed the serpent. He destroys this serpent because some people were actually worshiping it. Now, it really, I don't guess we should be surprised at that. That some people worshipped it. They worshipped things less than this. At least at one point, this did have legitimate healing powers because God placed them there. And but, but ultimately, because of man's idolatry and man's wickedness, uh, they have to destroy uh, this, this bronze serpent. And, and by the way, some of your translations may have bronze as the New American Standard. Some of them may have copper. There, but they're looking at the same word and just trying to determine what metal best fits uh, this particular uh, this particular description. Now, this section, really, this verses four through nine, plays into the New Testament in several ways. Uh, first of all, look at First Corinthians ten. First Corinthians ten. 1 Corinthians 10 is a fascinating passage where Paul is using the wilderness experiences of Israel to warn them about their problems. A lot of 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12 goes back to the book of Numbers. Some of it also goes back to the book of Exodus. Uh, But look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. So as Paul is telling the church at Corinth, how they need to live and how they need to respond to the temptations that are around them. He sees lessons for them in the history of Israel as described in the book of Numbers. If we're guilty of the same crime of trying the Lord that they were guilty of, look at what happened to them. They were destroyed by serpents. All of this is under that heading In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, which says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest we fall. The Bible warns against spiritual overconfidence in these verses. It's interesting in verse 13, right after this, the Bible warns against becoming so discouraged that you think you can't make it. 
because it says then, no temptation has overtaken us, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will with temptation provide a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. Don't be so discouraged you think there's no way we can survive. Don't be so confident as to think there's no way I can fall. Neither are true. Neither are true. But that's one use the New Testament makes of this particular passage. Also, look at John 3. John 3. Now, I'm sure there is a depth in this beyond what we're going to describe tonight or beyond what I've grasped. But in first, in, in John 3, as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, that was 1 Corinthians 10, verse 9, and John 3, verse 14, let's just say 16. But John 3, verse 14 Jesus says to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that whoever believes in Him shall have eternal life. I quote verse 16. We can understand this text without it. But you understand how this this is what leads to God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. But just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up that whoever believes in Him shall have eternal life. I know that would have sounded very strange to to Moses. And it's kind of like we stated, and John stated it last, a couple of weeks, maybe last week, about the ashes of the red heifer. You know, it sounds almost magical, doesn't it, about how all this purifying process. Hey, you look on this serpent and live? And a serpent really didn't have that good association in Israel anyway, if you remember Genesis 3. And also it was an unclean animal, according to Leviticus 11, 41 and 42. But you just look on the serpent and live. And some in Israel may think that's a bizarre solution. But those who looked upon it lived. And God's solution to the problem of sin is to some people just as mystifying that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Particularly from John 12, 32 and 33, we read that being lifted up particularly refers to His death. The Son of Man must be lifted up. That whoever looks upon Him, whoever believes in Him, will have eternal life. So, and I'm purposely running by that, not letting you ask me any questions because I don't know if I know how to answer them. But I want you to see a couple of times the manna is mentioned. Look at John 6. 
35. John 6, 30-35. They said to him, they said to Jesus, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now, I want to tell you, that contextually is a foolish statement. Do you know what used to happen the day before? Jesus fed the 5,000 in John 6, verses 1 through 14. Now, some of them are wanting a sign. Give us a sign. And they even pick the sign that Moses gave them bread in the wilderness. Well, he gave them bread in the wilderness, but they still complain. Sounds a lot like them, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like this generation. Jesus' time. And Jesus said in verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Look at 48 through 51. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give him for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread that God gives from heaven in John 6, 30-35. The bread that God gave ultimately, not Moses. The bread that God gave is a picture of a greater bread. Jesus. That's the bread of life. Man shall not live by bread alone. comes from the wilderness experience. They're being taught that by the manna. Man shall not live by bread alone. The true bread that comes out of heaven is me, he's saying in effect. And he's saying those who ate this bread in 48 through 51, they died. They died. But the one who eats the bread that I give him, who eats my flesh will have eternal life. Now the manna makes one other appearance in the New Testament. And that's in Revelation 2 in verse 17. To the church at Pergamum. Revelation 2 in verse 17. The church at Pergamon is told, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Those who overcome are going to be given hidden manna. Again, I don't know what all that means. 
But just as God provided for Israel and satisfied them in the wilderness, so this is a picture of His ultimate providing and satisfaction for us in heaven. Okay? Katrina? Um, I, I think it's interesting when he says, after, right after the man, he talks about the stone. Um, it reminds me of like memorial stones that were set up um, after they passed through Canaan. So like yeah. after you pass through into heaven, then you get you get your own stone. <laughs> well, cool. yeah, yes, that's right. Whatever that means again. Right. Uh, but you get a stone, yes. But you do see those piles of stones in the book of Joshua. Uh, I can remember, and one of my sons was telling me recently, he's just been preaching this series. Uh, there's a question asking Joshua, what do these stones mean? And there's a bunch of piles of stones set up in the book of Joshua. And I can remember writing that lesson and just, and this is a great lesson. But I shouldn't have thought that, because as soon as you think that, the congregation will convince you it's not a good lesson necessarily, and, and remember that happened with that. Uh, but 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 I do think there's a good thought there. That you know, what do these stones mean? And just look at each pile of rock, and what's it supposed to teach us in the book? But ultimately, we're given a stone ourselves, and, and just those blessings to the overcomers in Revelation are worthy of studying in themselves, and. Um, any questions on one? Any other questions on one through nine? Was there a connection, <clears throat> to your knowledge, between uh, snakes and Egypt? Well, the, the represent, one, representative. There, there was, there is an example that archaeologists have found from about 1150 BC in a Egyptian temple of a snake that's somewhat like this copper snake. Now, Egypt, um, I, I forget the role in Egyptian religion in Pharaoh? that they play, but but it seems like they were represented by Cobra or something, yeah. weren't yeah. they? Yeah. And, uh, which is one of my personally least favorite <laughs> kinds of snakes. Uh, but, um, so I, I, I don't know, I don't know how that ties. But somebody said it's possible. You want Egypt? I'll give you Egypt. Okay, it's a good point. That is a good point. That might be a good way to say it because it is it is a land of snakes, and that is a couple of times. That is how the wilderness is described. One of them is Deuteronomy eight in verse fifteen. Deuteronomy eight and fifteen. He led them through. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water and he brought for you water out of the rock of Flint. So that's one of the times the wilderness is described that way as well. But it's also, that's a good point about about Egypt. Uh, Mary. Yeah, some of the pharaoh's headdresses had serpents. Yeah, I, I was thinking that that was, I was thinking that is the case. Uh, I wanted though to quote a better source than the Ten Commandments by Cecil D. DeBeal. So I wanted to, wanted to quote something. You know, so I, could, I should just appeal, appeal to that movie and say, just go back and watch it. It shows you right there. You know, but, but no, I, I do think that that is correct, Mary. I think you're right. I, I find it interesting that the, uh, the people want the serpents to leave. God gives, doesn't give them 
what they want. He gives them what they need uh-huh. and gives them salvation from the serpent. Yeah. Jesus wasn't what the people necessarily wanted, but Jesus was what they needed yeah. to give them the ultimate salvation. Yes, that's right. And um, we still have the disease, so to speak, uh, sin, but we have to look to him for life. So, yes. There's no indicating an indicator on how long this lasted, though, right? Like, there tradition? There's, there's, yeah, there's nothing. I think this is in the 40th year, um, but, but no, no, there's no indication. They're just kind of like the plagues in that respect, kind of hard to put a time scale on it. Now, I appreciate Josh were helping us with this map. And again, a lot of these places are hard to identify, but I wanted to give you some kind of a concept of where we were, okay? Here is the promised land of Canaan. You see the Dead Sea on this side, and it's barely a line that this is here, the Jordan River. Let me, I want to see, if we turn that off for just a second with that help, don't get afraid, anyone. Um, but this would be the Jordan River going up here. <laughs> that scared me, Josh. <laughs> but um, um, <laughs> I was afraid we had a serpent in on this. But here's the Jordan going up and the Sea of Galilee here. So Israel is on this side. Now, it is hard to identify with precision where all these places are. But if you, if you kind of sit on this part of the map, Josh... Um, remember, they have wanted to go through the land of Edom. They've wanted to go through the land of Edom, had to skirt Edom, go to Moab. But here they're going to come up through. Ultimately, they're going to come up through this territory that belongs here to Sihon and Og. Heshbon, which we're, we're not precise about the identification, uh, but but these places like Heshbon. Um, Jahaz, uh, they will be mentioned in this description, these next few verses. Also, you see a couple of places here, uh, Aboth and I Abiram, which are mentioned in the text around Numbers uh, 21, around verse 11 and 12, I believe, that they are mentioned. But this is... They're trying to skirt the territory of Edom. They're trying to go around the territory of Moab. And we'll see more about that in the book of Deuteronomy. And they are coming up through... They're going to ultimately come to Sihon, king of um, the Amorites. So let's... Thank you, Ryan. Uh, Let's go ahead and say a little bit about verses 10 through 20. We're not going to say much about this, this their journeys in the wilderness. I want to tell you too, having a good Bible atlas can be really helpful. Having a good Bible atlas. I've got several of them, and yet the unfortunate thing is none of them answers all the questions because they can't. Because a lot, in a lot of times too... There is archaeological. There are archaeological disputes over: Is this really that city? You know, sometimes we think that was the city, and that is this, and then we find things, and we say, "Hmm, is that really that city? Is is it another city that's close by?" So, archaeology facts do not come out of the ground saying, "Hey, I'm from this city." And this, they have to be interpreted. 
And often they're interpreted in light of the knowledge that we have. And uh, sometimes correctly, sometimes I'm sure incorrectly. But what you see in verses 10 through 20, a description of some of their travel log. Now, if you write down in your notes Numbers 33, we talked about Numbers 33 a little bit the other day. Numbers 33, starting around verse 40, uh, you'll see through about verse 49 that some of these same places are mentioned. Numbers 33 just mentions the places they count along the way. And um, so uh, that records some of this information. One of the things I want you to see, he mentions this book in verse 14, the book of the wars of the Lord. Uh, This is a book that's only mentioned here. Uh, Some Middle Ages, you know, around 1000 B.C., uh, Jewish commentaries assumed in most a lot of modern commentaries follow suit that this book of the wars of the Lord is probably just a record of ancient poems or songs that talked about some of these military conflicts. I think that's a good guess, but we don't know with absolute certainty. It's only mentioned here. There's another book, a book of Yasser or Jasser, uh, that's mentioned in Joshua 10 verse 13 and 2 Samuel 1.18. But... Even like in verse 14, if you read it in several different translations, it's going to be different. It seems like it's missing some verbs there. And it it just has some place names. But one thing that seems interesting to me, a couple things that seem interesting to me. First of all, God says in verse 14, the people continued to beer, which in Hebrew means well. Um... That is the well where the Lord said to Moses, Assemble the people that I may give them drink. Here is a case where the people are being given water with as far as the record goes, no complaining. Maybe this is a step forward for Israel. Maybe they're doing something and learning something from this. But as they're singing a song about a well in verses 17 and 18, now my guess is that's something you've never done, to compose a song or poem about a well. This shows us, I think, that there is a growing joy and excitement and anticipation among the people as they are nearing going to the promised land. If they're singing this song and writing this poem about the well, maybe that is a positive indication of the hope of this group is growing. Now, Sihon and Og, 21 through uh, 35. In verse 21, Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites. Now, keep your you know, turn back to Numbers twenty verse fourteen. There they sent messengers to the king of Edom, and they said to the king of Edom, "Thus says your brother Israel: You know all the hardships that have befallen us. Now they're sending messengers to Sihon, the king of the Amorites. When you had a large group, when you have a nation like this passing through an area, apparently." 
it was custom, it was just good manners that you tell the king, you know, here we are. We're passing through. We don't have any evil intent. They say in verse 22, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn off into your field or vineyard. We will not drink water from your wells. We will go by the king's highway until we pass through your borders. If you look back at 2017, that is the same thing they said to the king of Edom. Same thing they said to the king of Edom. They're offering this to Sihon. But just like the king of Edom, the king of Edom would not let them pass through and came out to meet them with a heavy force in chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. Here in verse 23, Sihon and Og would not permit Israel to pass through his border. He would not permit them to pass through. And he gathers his forces and comes out to meet Israel. But what did God tell Israel about Edom? What did He tell them about Edom in Numbers 20? Don't bother them. They're your brother. Now that's not stated in the Numbers text. That's stated in Deuteronomy 2. Don't bother them. They are your brother. I have given him his land. Now the Amorites came out and they make that attack and God doesn't say that to them. This says in verse 27, Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok. As far as the sons of Ammon from the border to the sons of Ammon was Jazer. Israel defeats Sihon. They defeat him. Sihon apparently was a powerful king. And you get this from verse 26 beginning. In verse 26, we find that this is the Sihon who had defeated the Moabites in other days and taken land away from them. Verses 27 through 30 talk about a song that was written to commemorate the victory of Sihon over the Moabites. The reason this song is recorded is because it is showing us that Sihon was a formidable formidable foe about whom in his day ballads were written celebrating his military victories. And God gave Israel victory over him. You may not want to think about how strong and mighty your opponent is before the conflict. But afterward, the more you reflect on it and the greater his strength, the greater the celebration of victory. And this is a celebration in a sense of Sihon's might to show us how God gave him victory. By the way, make a note that verses 28... And 29 are quoted in Jeremiah 48, verse 45 and 46. That is a passage where Jeremiah is announcing judgment on Moab. Jeremiah 48, verses 45 and 46. So they defeated Sihon in verse 33 through 35. They defeat Og. They defeat Og. Now, one of the things I did today, I just I just looked up every reference to Sihon and Og in the Old Testament. 
And uh, just if you want to, to study a subject thoroughly like that, just get out, just look up every reference to it. In the case where there's not that many references, look them all up and put them in order. I don't mean this to sound too cocky, but I would almost assure you that this was one. What I wrote was one of five best lessons you've ever heard on Sihon and Og. I mean, it was it was in the top five you've heard on that subject anyway. But here are some passages to deal with. Numbers 32, because in Numbers 32 we find Joshua is, or, or Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh are given this land. Deuteronomy 1.4, really important are Deuteronomy 2.24 through 3.7, very important for our discussion. Also, Joshua 2, verse 9 and 10, and Joshua 9, verses 9 and 10. But let me give you the points of it real fast, okay? First of all, victory over Sihon and Og. What does it teach us? Victory over Sihon and Og is a statement of God's loving kindness to Israel. Do you remember what Psalm 136 does? It mentions things God did and it says, for His loving kindness is everlasting at the end of every verse. And it mentions the victory over Sihon in, in, in Psalm 136.19 and the victory over Og in verse 20. It is a picture of God's loving kindness. Psalm 135, verses 10 through 12, does the same thing. Praise the Lord because he gave victory over these powers. Nehemiah 9.22 mentions this event as an example of God's love and God's care for Israel. So this was an example of God's love for Israel. This is very important. Before the conquest, before the conquest, it was a promise that the Lord would give Israel the land. If I just had one verse to make my main text in preaching about Sihon and Og, it probably wouldn't be Numbers 21. It would probably be this passage in Deuteronomy. And what you'll find there in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 24 through Deuteronomy 3 verse 7, or Deuteronomy 3, that's really 3 verse 11, excuse me, that every excuse they used for not going into Canaan at the first time, that applied to Sihon and Og. They were huge guys. How big was Og's bed? Christy, you were talking to me about this. How big was it? Thirteen and a half feet. Thirteen and a half feet. He's a huge giant. He's a giant in the land. And their cities are fortified to the heavens. And God gave them victory. And it's stated in Deuteronomy 31 and verse 4, I believe it is, that because He gave them victory there, He's going to give them victory over all the nations. It is a reminder after the conquest that the Sihon and Og are used as a reminder that God gave them the land. God gave them the land. And you see this in Joshua 2, is it Joshua 12, 2 and 5, Joshua 13, and, and several references there beginning with verse 10. Four, it was an opportunity 
for the nations to see the power of God. You know two people who referred to this? Rahab was one. Rahab and Joshua 2, verses 9 and 10. We've, we've heard what God did to Egypt. And we've heard how you defeated the two kings of the Amorites, Sihon and Og. The nations had heard about this. The Canaanites had heard about this. The Canaanites could have learned like Rahab did. The power of God. The Gibeonites referred to the same set of events. The Exodus, the Exodus and the defeat of Sihon and Og. And this serves as a warning to all nations of God's judgment. That is the point of the use of this in Jeremiah 48, verses 45 and 46. Jeremiah 48, verses 45 and 46. In that passage, there's a long, the whole 47 verses are dealing with judgment on Moab. And it's quoted at the end of this to emphasize this is a warning to the nations. What happened to Sihon and On is a warning which will happen to all the ungodly who defy him. So those are some things about Sihon and Og. I know we've already gone over any quick question that you have. Thank y'all for bearing with me. Um, but I was excited about that. I wanted to present it to you. But you can just get out a concordance and look up Sihon and Og and see some of the other references to them. And thank you for the picture, Josh. I could leave that up there a second. Come back afterwards and erase it if... Anybody wanted to?